As always, our show is sponsored by Memoria Press. You can find our curriculum at memoriapress.com. Welcome to Classical Etc., a show from Memoria Press that dives into the philosophy, culture, and heart of classical education. You're in the studio with Shane Saxon. Welcome to another episode of Classical Etc. I'm seated with Paul, Tanya, and Martin. And before we get to our topic, which is Socratic dialogue, Tanya said that she would fire me if I didn't ask what she was reading. And I don't want to be fired. So, Tanya, let me ask you, what have you been reading recently? I'm reading Mansfield Park. Oh, you Which are. I promised Lita that I would read. But you, you said you hate my least favorite, least favorite, Jane Austen, but she thinks it should be. It is her favorite, and so we need to have a discussion about it. But so I'm rereading it at this age rather than a young age to see if I like it now. Okay. And I can say already, I'm about a hundred pages in, and I do like it much better than mm. I did the first time. I think I was too young the first time I read mm. it, and Fanny just really irritated me, and I didn't have the wisdom really to know where she was coming from or to be able to put myself in her place. I don't know. We'll see. I may get tired of her by the end, but it's a long book. Martin, have you read Mansfield Park? You know, I've not read Mansfield Park, nor have I read Persuasion. Well, you need to read it. Which, after Pride and Prejudice, well, she, what, is it four or five books? uh, But I, uh, I, I was... After our discussion here, yeah. I, I sort of made the commitment that I was going to. I've never read it either. Yeah. You should read Persuasion and Northanger Abbey before we go to England, because when we go to Bath, those are the two that are set partially in Bath. Okay. Oh. I will do that. So this is ahead. the upcoming college trip to England. That's yeah. right. With Joseph Pierce as yes. our guide, yes. a March. literary tour. Mm-hmm. Wow. Literary tour, the Shakespeare and the Shire. Oh, oh, wow. Yes. Paul, now what have you been reading recently? As well, in this morning. Because we're on this breakneck pace of recording podcasts and I have to read something this morning. I was a little worried. And I, <laughs> uh, Martin and I had talked, I had told Martin recently about a short story that I read from Balzac, um, The Atheist Mass. And he had told me about another book by Balzac that he listened to. And I can't remember what it was titled. So I decided I was just going to search on the library for Balzac and I'd listen to something on the way in. And the only thing available was in French. It's called the Tout de Femme. And I thought, well, I'll give it a shot. I need to get my French up to date anyway. And it lasted about five minutes. And I turned it off and, turned, and went right back to Graham Greene. <laughs> <laughs> because of the language, not the writing. Not, no, no. I love, <laughs> I love Balzac in, in translation. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure if I read it, if I sat down and was mm-hmm. reading the language, it would be fine. Mm-hmm. But, but listening to the speed listening of- Listening to the yeah. speed of the French narrator, plus his French is a little older- um, I just couldn't do it in the car. And I always feel like every time we bring up Balzac, we probably should say Balzac's books are for mature readers because he's French. <laughs> yes. Uh, and they oh. do, you know, have, you know, scenes in it, but the, I mean, a little the themes, racy? what's that? Are they racy? Uh, I mean, there's part, you know, it's good and evil and, mm. and it's Paris, you know, so I, so there are there are you know situations in there which are you know for mature readers, but they're, I mean, they're not they're not racy. And, but some of our readers should read it in the French, is what you're saying. Uh, yes, so the, yeah. yes, so they they won't have to worry about those passages yeah. or any other passages. Yeah, that's right. Okay, Shane, you can move on now. Thank you for uh, letting me get that in. Well, I just really oh, needed to tell people that and I'm I, reading Mansfield Park. Happy to do it, so that Thank I don't you. get fired. Now, the question I was going to ask that I'll ask Martin because he he hasn't offered his reading was can you tell me about a memorable 
book reading experience in your life? Now, I know you don't remember much, but that's usually just the last five years. It seems like 20 years ago, your memory is crystal clear. A memorable book reading. Well, <laughs> that's what I was reading. When you're elderly. Uh, <laughs> I was reading uh, Charles Williams' book, All Hallows Eve, which is a advanced theological thing, which does deal with the satanic mm. in, the, in the in the book. And I'm sitting there in an airplane reading it, and Stuart is coming. She says, "Oh, what are you reading?" And I and I just sort of put it, it's all how she said, oh, I'll have to pick that up. And I didn't say it, but I'm thinking, no, lady, you do not need to talk to read this book. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, the topic at hand is Socratic dialogue. Now, Martin, you mentioned that there's a recent Wall Street Journal article, an opinion piece by Jeremy Tate. He is the CEO of Classical uh, Learning Test. Classic Learning Test. Classic Learning Test. And he was responding to this chat GPT. Mm-hmm. Um, Tony, are you familiar with this? Yes. Yeah. So there's a lot of fear that, you know, chat GPT is going to make writing essays irrelevant. And so Jeremy Tate responds to that by saying Socratic dialogue is the answer. And in classical schools, we have Socratic dialogue and that helps our students. Yeah. So instead of, and can somebody, Paul, you're the chat guy. What chat GPT, just for our view, uh, listeners who don't know what that Necessarily is, I, right? is it? I believe it's just an artificial intelligence sort of program that you can kind of plug in what it needs to be about, and it'll just generate a an essay, an essay for yeah. you. Yeah. So, so he was responding to this to this idea that you know we in a lot of our colleges, and I'm not sure how much we do this anymore because people you know, lost students just can't write, but is grading paper. You get your grade by the papers that you write and the and the press. So it's now becoming apparent that there are that this this uh, chat GPT thing is so good at writing an essay that they can't distinguish it from uh, all the mediocre student essays. Out and there. the other thing is I've got, I've got a friend who's a high school teacher and she can easily, if she suspects that a student's paper is, is on a level that is higher Be, than that student, right, normal. then she can just put like a paragraph in Google and it'll pull up if it really has been plagiarized. And that's not going to be possible with this. So that's the scary thing is now you can catch plagiarism if you're a careful teacher, but you're not going to be able to catch it. And right, I'm thinking, but, but you will still see a discrepancy between what that student can do in class. If your class isn't a hundred kids, right in a college, you might have right. 100, 200 kids, but if you're in a smaller class setting, which Jeremy Tate would probably advocate for, right? Um, oh, sure. And advocating for Socratic dialogue. But if you're in a smaller class setting, you're still going to say, wow, this student, what they say in class versus what I just got in this essay, it, there's a discrepancy, but it will be, it will be very difficult to pin them right. and say, you're going to suffer the consequences for this because you cheated. And yeah. that's exactly what Jeremy Tate is going for saying you can't chat GPT your answer in that's a class. Right. And, and that's the positive. Yeah. So I think the rest of our discussion is really going to be focusing in on this concept <laughs> of Socratic questioning, Socratic dialogue. that has been very popular in classical education. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we're going to be very, way more nuanced than, you know, typically people are about this concept. But before we get there first, Martin, could you just kind of expound on the positive aspect of what what Jeremy's getting at and what I think we would all agree at agree on in this table about the way that questioning and what he's kind of intending in that article is, is really a, a fruit of of real classical education? Yeah, well, I, uh, he's he's dealing with this very specific thing, and he's 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 using it really, I think, as as an excuse 
to talk about d- discussion, Socratic discussion, and I'm, I'm, I'm putting that in quotation marks because we'll probably interrogate that notion a little bit. But, um, but I, I think he, you know, he's using it for that, for that particular purpose and in, in, in saying that you, know, you, you can't get to the students' real abilities until you can actually talk with them. And this is why you read uh, John Henry Newman's idea of a university, and he gives you these examples of how he, how he examines students orally. Mm-hmm. He asks, he asks them questions. Mm-hmm. They respond. Uh, you can't, you can't, like you say, you can't jet, G, 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 chat GPT, chat GPT that. And so, um, so I think Jeremy is right on, on target there. The problem we run into is when you, when you you are so excited about Socratic discussion that you ignore the fact that 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 along with the great books and applied to the great books is what you're trying in a classical education and Jeremy doesn't really go here but it is is what you're trying to enable students to you're training them to be able to engage in Socratic discussion at the college level and even to a certain extent the high school level. And and you're you're training them to to read the great books. Those require years of preparation, and so you can't just. The problem in the classical education movement is that people just want to go whole hog right into Socratic discussion without it preparing their students to do it. Um, and I think that you know what we do in our curriculum in terms of just always you know, starting even and just you know asking questions and getting our students answers and all that is part of what we do. Um, in addition to the you know the more more uh, not necessarily lecture type, but pre- presenting them with the stuff they need to know at the younger levels, you know all that is is you know somebody's not going to walk in the classroom thinking oh you're doing Socratic discussion, no but we're preparing them to do it. They have to be prepared, and I think that's kind of our angle. Tanya can correct me. I I, I think that's no, that's right. I think that's perfect, and I'm glad you started there. And and I would like to give an example of what Martin's talking about. So like in Farmer Boy, we might ask, what is the relationship between freedom and responsibility? Mm-hmm. So to ask a third grader that question would be ridiculous. <laughs> but to say um, throughout the book for the students to be making a list of Almanzo's Al responsibilities on the farm, to be um, to keep pointing out throughout the book as you make a list of all the great food that they eat and to keep pointing out to students that that they are free because they're self-sustaining so that frees them to be independent and but they have a lot of responsibility in order to get to that freedom so this is all too much for a third grader Mm -hmm. but it's an introduction to it and we're doing it through story Mm -hmm. so we would never say to a third grader, um, what is the relationship between freedom and responsibility? <laughs> but by the end of the book, we can certainly we can do that because sure. we've we've worked our way there throughout the book. Yeah. Now, Paul, you have some opinions about this phrase, Socratic questioning itself, and I want to hear you <clears throat> push back on it. But before you do, let's take a quick break. Free shipping is back at Memoria Press. Your favorite classical Christian curriculum is available now with free shipping the entire month of February. Get Latin, logic, literature, and more with Memoria Press. Visit memoriapress.com to learn more. Now, Paul, 
How would you define Socratic questioning? That's a phenomenal question because it's used it's used ubiquitously in different ways. But I think I would define it as a teacher leading students to a particular value, right? And and by so doing by doing it in the form of questioning, it leads the student to actually um, embrace that value for themselves. Well, and if the if the purpose or end of Socratic discussion is uh, knowing knowing values, we we also need to. I'd expand that a little bit to say we're 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 talking about you know what 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 classical education is about is really an understanding of the true, the good, and the beautiful. And so, as ideas and the discussion of ideas, Socratic method is particularly appropriate, as opposed, to, you know, you're you're trying to you're asking why questions of these things, as opposed to how questions when you're teaching a skill, or what questions when you're you're just teaching basic knowledge. So, the what I have seen implemented in schools across the country is i mean the same thing what what martin's talking about of just jumping in and saying you know well all socrates did was ask questions so we just need to let the students ask questions and talk about it right it's it's it becomes it's it's applied in the form of a conversation as opposed to uh, maybe a dialectic or dialogue would be better, right? If you go look at, at, at any, if you go read any of Plato's dialogues where Socrates is, is the questioner um, for one, he's always dealing with adults. He's except in one case. And when he's dealing with adults, he's, he will throw a very open-ended question out there, but when he deals with a child and he, he's, he, he gives them a very, closed question where all the child can answer is yes or no, basically. And then that's, that's getting this, the child to engage in this process of discovery of learning, but it it's not, it's not letting them go in any direction. And so, I mean, I've walked into classrooms before where the kids are all sitting in a circle and the teacher literally is outside of the circle. And it's a free for all versus the teacher who is driving this. Right. And, and I mean, I had lots of, if you want to call them Socratic dialogues with my students, but they're all seated facing towards me. I was in the front and they would say something and I would be able to respond to that. And I'd call on the next student, you know, in random ways to keep them engaged. And we had very deep discussions, but it was all, driven by me to get to the point that I wanted to get to. Whereas what Socrates does in his discussions with adults is oftentimes he doesn't come to an, uh, uh, any sort of truth. He come, he, he, you know, at the end, a lot of things of what it's not, but you don't often come to a, a definition of what it is that there's, there's seeking for, whether it's justice or wisdom or whatever, the, these questions that he's asking. And so but, but he's able to drive a student, a child to, I believe it's the, the uh, Pythagorean theorem. Yeah. So on that point, you have this article, the condemned teacher uh-huh. it's on the Memory press website from what? 2005 years ago, I think 2017 yeah. where you kind of ask the question, if we are trying to do Socratic 
questioning, let's look at where Socrates is teaching. And the one place where he's teaching his students in the meno, I think is what you point out. Right. Which, which I think is the, I just want to hammer that distinction. We can't, we can't deny that children are not adults. Mm. Uh, we can't, we, we have to affirm that children <laughs> are not adults. Um, and, and that's a distinction that is often lost in, mm. in the pursuit of Socratic questioning and at a college level. Great. Like let's have these discussions free for alls. Right. Well, and we can even, if we've prepared students, so back to farmer boy, so we're going to talk about freedom versus responsibility all the way through. We're going to talk about it in Heidi. Then we're going to talk about it in Robin Hood. We're, it's just going to be all the way through. And when we get to upper high school, when we get to Anna Karenina and we say, discuss how freedom and responsibility are related in relation to Lev and his work on the land, they're going to be able to do it because we've prepared them to do it. So at that point, I'd say in our curriculum, at least by high school, mm-hmm. we should be able to have real Socratic discussion. But I think the point you made in your article that I that resonated the most to me is that it's got to be with an end point in mind. Mm-hmm. With an, there has to be an end goal. This isn't just a tell me how you feel um, kind of question. It needs to be like you're pointing students to a truth. And so you're giving them you've hopefully we've given them the tools to get mm. there yeah we we need to make sure that people don't think of socratic discourse as an encounter group where everyone <laughs> shares their feelings this is what we always lapse into and what in many cases uh most students that's all they're capable of at, at, at some points in their education because if you look at what socrates was doing socrates was extremely directive all right, he's driving the whole thing toward a toward a certain point that he wants to drive it to. Um, the other thing is, Plato says somewhere that that this this methodology is only appropriate to mature men over the age of thirty. Okay, so we need to remember remember this when there's, we're trying this out on children. Wow, yeah, um, because it requires. I mean, you listen to the answers that are given by his interlocutors, and they know something. They're they're not stupid people. Socrates is smarter, and he, in many of his dialogues, as Paul's saying, he, does, he they just get to a point where all the theories that anyone has proffered in the discussion are are clearly not acceptable, and that's where they, we leave it, and we we go into another dialogue. Uh, the other thing to remember is, well, I think I think Tony was upset with you for not quoting correctly. I think Plato says mature men over thirty and mature women over eighteen. Oh, is that what it was? <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. I, I, I missed, missed that, that degree. part. Yeah. yeah, when I was taking my philosophy degree, but they didn't mention that. Um, so, um, so the other thing is this. Uh, Paul mentioned Mino's slave boy, where where Socrates is able to to get the Pythagorean theorem out of him by a series of questions. Uh, we have to remember what. Socrates' assumption was in all of this, which was the pre-existence of souls, and that all knowledge was remembrance. So when he's getting it out of the slave boy, it's because the point. slave, because he's he's existed in some prior life or whatever. He's he's, he's he's contemplated the forms. He's contemplated the forms in he eternity. Was born. So yeah. So we're well. Do we believe that? I mean, we have to. This I, I'm going to say no. I don't believe actually in reincarnation, Martin. <laughs> yes, I just want to okay. be clear about that. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but I mean. I mean, we have to remember what the assumption, what 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 Plato and the character of Socrates' assumptions were 
in all this. Um, and, and we don't necessarily believe that all knowledge is remembrance. Uh, it's something we actually learn in this life. So, and that doesn't, that doesn't, um, uh, nullify the Socratic method. It just means that when we apply it, we need to remember what Socrates' assumptions okay. were. So are you saying that Socrates thought that Menos, Minos, what, uh, it's that a sla- he it's a, it's already boring. had all this yes. stuff inside him because... Yes. Because, because well, he and Meno were discussing Minos slave boy. Is right, but right. I mean, I'm, I'm confused about the reincarnation thing. So, so Plato believed that everybody before they were... that. that that, well, he believes that we're all reincarnated, but it's sort of in that in that time period between when you're you're uh, between alive, lives. <laughs> that in some way you get to contemplate the forms, so the true essence of of, of what exists. So is that the cave wall thing? And it's, it's sort what, of it, it's what that's trying to teach you. Yeah, right? and yeah. so so he's what he's saying is the reason you can question somebody. And then come up with something that they wouldn't have otherwise been able to tell you is because you provoked this remembrance of what they had before they were born. Wow, mm-hmm. I had no idea. Right, yeah. which 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 is just to say that we do not, in fact, contain within us all the answers, and that we're trying to. They're they're near back to the Speak encounter. Speak for yourself. I feel but, like they're inside. But we talk about as iron sharpens iron, right? Like it's in that conversation that we can kind of hone. We can come up to these distinctions and say, "Well, I didn't actually mean that," and you can hone yeah, and come in, a, to in that an adult truth. context. But in education. We are dealing with students who don't know a lot. They are still needing to know the basic knowledge that is required to engage in a Socratic discussion, which is why when I go to a seminar on Socratic discussion, and the whole thing, they didn't apparently notice this, is done in lecture form. Uh, I have the question, excuse me, but if if Socratic method is so good and they were saying this, this should be used even down to the lowest levels. If it, if it's so, if it's so good, why are you conducting this entire seminar in, in, in something other than Socratic method? Okay. So we, we need to, this whole thing of assuming what children know already is extremely important. And we need to remember that, that the Socratic method assumes that, um, that you already know a bunch of stuff, uh, I don't, you know, well, right, and that's why. That's why. I mean, I, I, when I was teaching seventh and eighth graders, like I could, I could start this process, right, in sort of a more dedicated way, where we could spend a significant amount of time doing it, but we were also doing it based on a particular text. So mm-hmm. you know, when that we, everyone had probably read, right? Well, mm-hmm. we were all reading together, yeah. right? Yeah. So for so for me to to reference the Iliad here, that's because I'm we don't all need to sit down and read it because we we've all read it, right? It's common knowledge. Whereas we could discuss the Iliad with those kids because we were reading it together. It was off a of ba- off of basic text, but they also had enough knowledge of the Bible, of other mm-hmm. literary works, of other history to be able to make outside connections, and that's where you I think you can really start seeing that sort of thing happen in middle school and beyond. I can imagine a Platonist listening to this um, and, and thinking they're in being outraged because they would say, well, isn't it obvious that, or isn't it even Christian to say that students know right from wrong inherently that they have, they resonate with what's beautiful, that they have some reasonableness within them. And so as we're discussing, it seems like you you three aren't 
denying that there's some things in some knowledge implanted in us by God, like right and wrong, but that there is an impartation of information and we need to be careful not to take that, that basic truth of what God has put inside of all of us and take it to its logical extreme as though every student should know everything about everything when they're in third grade. We have the faculty of knowing right and wrong that is undeveloped. And the point of education is to develop that faculty through precept and example. Uh, Which means when Jack puts his hand on the hot stove, he will learn right from wrong on that particular point. Right. There's some experience behind him. He did not, he did not, he he was not born knowing not to touch that. Yeah, but he was, well, that's true. But he was born born knowing that I don't like pain. That's true, but he was born with this. He was born with the capability for guilt, and he was born with the capability of seeing what's true and good and wanting that faculties. Yep, that's what you say. Capability. I agree with that, but I would I would reject the notion that we only learn right and wrong through experience. We only we develop the faculty through experience. Yes. Yeah. Well. We have the ability to know the distinction between right and wrong, but we have to, we have through, it's only through experience that can be developed and perfected and, and, and pushed in the right direction. And by experience, we're not only saying actually going up and hitting somebody and then getting the consequence, but that in the discussion of a story, we can, we can develop that faculty as well, right? Well, as we but just, you can't understand we, the story unless you've had some, ex, some actual concrete experiences yourself. I mean, you know, kids go from the very, very concrete when they're very, very young. Just watch a baby. They're learning the very, very basic stuff through experience. And then they yeah. take that stuff that they learn there, and then they talk about it, and then we learn it more, and we can read right, stories about it. Right, but it, it. doesn't – yeah, you don't have to have had every experience before you can actually engage with it no. in a literature context, right? You don't have to have done what Anna Karenina did to know that when you read Anna Karenina that that was wrong. Mm-hmm. But do you know that was wrong innately, or do you know that was wrong because of your upbringing? Well, yes. I think you're also, yes. see, but but the, but the, the literary story <laughs> allows you to also see the consequences of that. Yes, so right? you don't have to experience it because you can learn. Ultimately, if we only knew, you know, right from wrong because of what we were taught, then in various cultures around the world, we would have particular cultural norms that would define morality. We would not have objective right and wrong. Right. And Lewis's point in mere Christianity is that there's something inherent in all of us that natural and understands right and wrong. And I think that's kind of where people in Socratic discussion are going. It's like, oh, we need to help them to, you know, through questioning, find what is put in them through God. But I think the point that each of you have made that's very helpful is that that innate awareness, those innate faculties are sharpened over time through instruction in the Bible, mm-hmm. in literature, in exposure to truth, goodness, and beauty. And that's the nature of classical education. So I think this transitions to my kind of final question. We could sound like snobs, you know, telling Jeremy that he's using Socratic question. And, and I'm not, and I'm not saying that. Right, I, I don't he think we need, are. Because he's really, the context he's talking about this in is on a different question. He's also pretty much confining what he's saying to, to I think, older students and even kind of college level so what what is the value because i we have you know i i've tried to uh give a training at a school using paul's condemned teacher and as i was trying to explain the minnow it got so confusing that if any of these teachers who were there were listening they're like what are you talking about (laughs) um 
But we've pushed back on the Socratic dialogue for a reason to help teachers to think through these issues. What's the value in being nuanced instead of just using Socratic dialogue as, you know, synonym with discussion? What's the value in nuancing how we use this phrase? Well, you're going to use the right tool at the right time, right? I mean, it's just like if you're trying to screw in a screw, you're not going to whip out a hammer. Uh, that screw is not going to go in well. And so it'll go in. I've discovered it's not going to go in well. <laughs> and well, and, and that's a great point, right? You might use Socratic dialogue and you might think it, you got the job done, but maybe you didn't use your class time. Well, maybe, maybe, you know, you have a student who was not prepared for it and is so confused and is going off with the completely wrong idea in their heads because you weren't able to hammer it home. Oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, I think that was completely accidental and you only realized it right in the middle of your saying it. And you know you what? Went. You might be right. <laughs> uh, so, you know, you just, you need, you need to use the right, the right teaching technique at the right time, right? Right age of the student, the right discipline, the right, you know, all of that. I think we just want to be careful that, that it's, it's like a fad um, term for classical education. And a lot of times schools will think, oh, you know, we're going to do Socratic discussion because we're classical educators and they're using it incorrectly. And I think that's what we, and even in our classrooms, you know, we have to be careful that our teachers aren't um, wasting time mm. with questions that students aren't equipped to answer. And, and I also think we need to put uh, Socratic method in the context of the other two teaching methodologies. Okay. You have, you have didactic instruction, lecture, you have intellectual coaching. Okay. And then you have Socratic questioning. And what the thing that dictates which one you're using is number one, what the age of your student is. And number two, what it is you're trying to do. If the, if the purpose is to acquire knowledge, then Lectures are pretty good means. Didactic instruction is a pretty good means to do that. If you're trying to teach a skill, um, then then coaching is usually the best method to apply there. Whereas if you're talking about the understanding of ideas and val ideas and values, which is again something that you need a, a background to do well in the first place, then Socratic questioning is perfectly appropriate. Yeah, and and I think we probably should talk about the different kinds of questions that yeah, show, what, but what we can do that in a different different episode maybe well i don't know we have time we have so many episodes <laughs> let's do this let's do that one next time okay mm -hmm. okay give some people a reason to tune back in next week <laughs> all right i've enjoyed this conversation about socratic questioning thank you we'll see you next time thank you so much for listening to this episode of classical etc you can find us on spotify apple music or wherever else you get your podcasts if you liked this episode, consider leaving us a positive review and sharing it with a friend. A huge thank you to the Memoria Press Podcast Network for hosting our show. Be sure to check out all the great podcasts there. As always, I'm Shane Saxon. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Memoria Press Podcast Network, providing a classical Christian perspective on the world of education. To learn more about Memoria Press, visit us at memoriapress.com. To connect with us, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.